it's a big part of my working life to talk about my trauma. But I think other people should be better at talking about their trauma. And then we can start to help each other. So I think it's a strong way of creating a narrative by allowing people into the darkness of your own life. That was Daniel Rue, and this is Nordic Portraits. Daniel Rue is a photojournalist and lecturer who in 2013, at the age of just 24 years old, was kidnapped in Syria by members of the terror organization ISIS and held captive for 398 days. Following his release in 2014, his ordeal was documented in the critically acclaimed book Ser du Monde Daniel, which was later adapted for a film by the same title. Daniel, welcome to Nordic Portraits. Yeah, thank you. I wondered if we could start, Daniel, by going back to 2012, where after having come into contact with the legendary war photographer Jan Graup, you found yourself as his assistant on assignment in Somalia. And I wondered, what were your initial impressions from this maiden journey with him? I remember that when we arrived in Mogadishu, i never been to a war zone before, but I felt that I kind of had because, of course, digging into all of Jan Graub's materials and reading about war and seeing other photographers documenting it and, of course, movies. And so I think all of us are kind of raised with the idea of what war is. And then suddenly being there changed my perspective a lot because now I look everywhere myself and I kind of got my hopes up because I realized that somehow people have an amazing way of adapting themselves to crazy scenarios and situations, being able to look at the bright side because a lot of the people that I met in Somalia have never experienced anything but war and they did seem unhappy. They of course were struggling but Everybody is struggling with something. And so I think my, my interest was driven towards this part of being able to accept things and then have a, another focus. So especially here in Denmark, coming back from Somalia and in a period where the smartphone just started to appear, everybody was a part of these social medias and there was a saying that we have never physically felt better here in Denmark, but at the same time, we have never felt worse mentally. It's difficult to live up to the standards. So I don't think that living in a third world country compared to Denmark is worse per se. It's just different struggles. So what I'm trying to say is that there are stories everywhere. It's just a matter of trying to put yourself into that place. So if you've just been to a war zone and you come back and you hear some of your friends talking about how difficult it is to find out what you want in your life, you could easily be irritated and say to them, yeah, but 
What about places in the world where they cannot choose themselves, where they are born into this place of no future and no decisions to make for themselves? But I think it's a way too easy approach to take because every emotion is, is kind of okay. And uh, so I think that was a little bit what I saw in Somalia. I didn't want to do frontline war photography because I've seen those pictures a lot. I wanted to do it in another way somehow. And what was it about photography specifically that drew you in? I think at the beginning it was a feeling of trying to understand what I didn't understand. My background was in gymnastics and I've been an elite gymnast for the most of my teenage life. And when you do that, you're living in a kind of a bubble. So all I focused on was myself and to get better results and to beat my teammates, uh, to beat other guys outside of Denmark, to the world championships and so on. And then I started to do photography that drove me into photojournalism. And then the world kind of opened up in front of me and I got curious. And so my idea was kind of that my work should be focused on people like myself before I started to be interested in the world. Because I've always been interested in good stories. Like every one of us are, we are raised with nighttime stories and so on. So I wanted to try to talk to people who was not very into world affairs with my work. And in that way, I think you could take away a lot of politics and focus on the human and emotional side of conflict. Mm. A short 12 months later, you found yourself venturing into Syria, and cautiously so. As I understand, your plan was to base yourself at a border town in Turkey and travel into Syria only as day trips. Can you share a little about what your plan was for that now fateful trip in 2013? Yeah, I think my idea was to build up some kind of relationship with people in this border town as us, especially focusing on people who were capable of speaking English so I could speak directly to them and kind of give them a voice. And my dream was somehow to be able to be embedded with a family in that period where they should decide if they wanted to stay in Syria or if it was time to leave. Because I think that there is a lot of identification when you meet a family in their own home with their own stuff and dreams and kids and so on and and try to meet them before they became this political term refugee and try to understand why are you leaving your own home. I think that was where I wanted to go, but I also knew that there was a big chance that I wouldn't be that lucky. So yeah, I was just looking towards a safe place for me to work in a conflict zone a place where I could be surrounded by people that I could build up a relationship with. So that was my idea. So my first trip into Syria was not planned to last for more than 24 hours in and out and collect as much information, phone numbers and email addresses as possible. So I had a lot of people that I could stay in contact with, even though I were in Copenhagen. I think that way I could have an ongoing interview with them and whenever something will start to change, I will go back and join them and try to understand what's happening in their world. Why are they choosing to go right instead of left? 
so everything was kind of planned around that I could be as safe as possible. Um, I didn't want to lose my life. I didn't want to seek action and adrenaline. I've done a lot of that in my time as a gymnast. Yeah, I think I wanted to have a safe start. And maybe one day I would travel to the front line if that was where one of the boys in the family were going and try to understand his story and the family's uh, feelings of him traveling to a dangerous place. I just wanted to have a safe place to start where I could build up some relations. So can you describe the events that led to your capture? What suddenly went wrong when you were there? Yeah, so what went wrong was that there was a change in Syria at this point. The war had been going on for a bit more than two years. So it was kind of created a vacuum of control. So some of these groups started to change a bit and foreign fighters started to appear. And um, in the beginning, I think a lot of people looked at that like, yeah, they wanted to come and help and liberate Syria. But there was another history right next door from Iraq, where the war had been going on since 2003. And a group in Iraq started to send some of their high-ranking guys into Syria to, to use that power vacuum to dig into northern Syria. And that change that happened there happened pretty much under the radar. They moved around trying to get locals to help them and it's a little bit difficult to explain, but basically what happened was that a new idea came and a lot of people did not really know what that idea was about. They just wanted to support something that was organized. And that group was known in Iraq as Al-Qaeda and then later on became Islamic State in Iraq, ISI. And I think when I went into Syria, that was one month after they kind of claimed this new idea of an Islamic State in Syria. And it was not like it was on the front page of every newspaper. It happened under the radar in close groups. And I think the group that I was under the protection of at this point was starting to accept this new idea. So we thought that we were protected by this Free Syrian Army organization that was in control in Assas. But when we came and knocked the door, they had changed their ideas and perspective and aims for what was going on and what was going to happen. And when I tell you this, we were not aware of that when it happened. I have read a lot of books about the whole development of Islamic State in Syria and how it came to be. So I think to sum it up, I was at the wrong place at the wrong time. Uh, I was caught up in this power vacuum in a way. So they decided to take me and my driver and we were taken to a small farmhouse in the basement and we were kept there for a week. And then they released my, my driver and uh, my fixer, she was released 12 hours after we were held back. And uh, A fixer is your local contact who's looking after you, is that right? Yeah, it is like a translator, guide, uh, local helper. And yeah, she was a woman and she was released 12 hours later and... I was sitting there for a week with my driver, but we were not scared. Yeah, we were in the beginning, but then they started to treat us pretty well. And I was not the first journalist who have been held back in Syria. There was other stories of people that they wanted to do a background check on before they decided what to do. And I thought that was what was happening for me as well. And 
then they let my driver go and they decided to drive me deeper into Syria, into Aleppo, to the eye hospital or the children's hospital. That was um, at this point a stronghold for some of these more extremist groups like Anar al-Sham, Jabhat al-Nusra and at this time also this new idea of Islamic State. So I was held there for like two and a half months where the first two weeks I kind of got a little idea of what local Syrians are going through um, because they treated me very badly these two weeks. It was torture. Um, and after one week, I tried to hang myself because everything was just too much. Um, and uh, they managed to save me, if you can say it like that. They took me down. So, um, And after that, I think eight hours later, I managed to escape. And after one hour on the run, I got caught again, taken back and stayed another week. And that week, I just wanted to die. I, I was in a position where I didn't care. You know, I, I rather want to kill myself than end up in a video or something that they could use as propaganda. Uh, I just wanted to die. And suddenly they came and released my chains and I was taken to the basement of the same building. And then they just left me there for one and a half months where I, I think under my torture, um, I lost around 25 kilos. So I was very weak and sick. I had open wounds and I used this one and a half months to try to recover, being able to take care of myself again, you know, going to the toilet without passing out on the way, trying to get my wounds healed and being able to eat again. Um, so it was like my whole body was shut down and had to restart again. And also there I managed to get a pretty good relationship with especially one local Syrian guy called Bashir. He was in the mid-50s and he kind of took care of me at least the first week or two weeks after the torture. I couldn't take care of myself, so he helped me to the toilet and brought me food and water and cleaned me if I shed myself. And He was a fellow prisoner? Yeah, I was sitting with like 20 other Syrian guys. Some of them moved away and other guys came, but Bashir, he spoke decent English. So I built up a relationship with him. And then I could hear some of the stories of my fellow cellmates. And that was when I started to understand that even though I had been through what I thought was one of the worst things that humans can go through, I could hear from their stories that I have been treated kind of okay. Like what they did to me, they did to other guys, but much worse. So I was hanged down from the ceiling where my feet still could touch the floor. And one time it was for 24 hours and that was really painful. And, and when I told some of the local Syrian guys I was sharing the room with, one of the guys, he laughed a bit about what I said and told me that his thumbs was uh, zip tied together and they put a hook in this tie and then they hanged him from the ceiling, hanging from his thumbs with his arms behind his back. Um, 
so you could see he was hanging in a very awkward position. And when he told me that, I could easily see from his arms and his shoulders that they were not looking right. They were sitting in a strange position, like his arms have kind of popped out of place. And stories like this started to give me an idea that maybe they treated me like this to be sure not to kill me and not to damage me so hard that it would be difficult to negotiate me out because I was worth money. And that changed my perspective a bit. I kind of felt that, okay, even though I'm here in the worst situation, I could imagine I'm still kind of prioritized and I was still treated pretty well. So once again, my perspective changed. It gave me new hope that if they really wanted to kill me, they could just do to me what they did to the rest of the Syrian guys that I shared prison with at this time. But they didn't. That was a glimpse of hope that I could grab onto. Yeah. You mentioned this unsuccessful escape. What did that do to your mindset in terms of having successfully broken out of this compound and feeling this temporary sense of freedom only to find that you don't really have anywhere to run to? I'm just curious how you felt at that time and and how you dealt with that in the hours after being recaptured. I think what happens when you go to a mental state where I was, I think you suddenly are capable of adapting very fast. So I already been through this shock period, the shock period where you realize that you're probably not going home at all. You're dying in this shithole. So I had nothing to lose and everything to win. So when I started to escape, I knew that the chance for me to actually succeed was limited. And therefore, I did not put my head into my release. I was still prepared that this could go wrong. And it did. And when you look at how that formed my mind, was to be very realistic and not set my hope up to things that will not come because you will just get disappointed. So actually I saw this escape as my way of taking control in a short period of time and actually managed to see the sky again and to feel free for a short time. But I escaped in the morning, which was a big problem because I had a full day to look into before night will come. And that's made it much more difficult for me to actually manage to find somebody who will help me. But I didn't have the guts to wait until night. I had this one chance and I took it. And at this point, Islamic State didn't control a lot of territory. So I think it was the best time for me to actually try to escape. And there was a huge chance for me to run into some of the more moderate rebels who would risk their own lives to to help me. Um, And of course, I had that hope. But yeah, just it didn't turn out that way. And I'm a little bit like, yeah, not thinking too much about it. Um, And after that, I didn't want to escape again. It was not worth it. So I realized that if I should ever get home alive, it should be by negotiation, especially because I could see that the group that was holding me expanded a lot, very, very fast, because... I ended up with other Western hostages and some of them just recently taken so they could give an update on how the situation was outside. So we ended up 24 people, Westerners, 
held in the same location. And I was number six out of 24 people. And I was taken, I think, eight months before the last ones arrived. So it's not like now Islamic State is in control and whoever goes there will be beheaded in an orange jumpsuit. It was not like that at all. The situation was much more complicated. And um, whenever there came a new guy inside the room, I thought to myself, what the fuck? Why, why, why did you go into Syria when you knew that a lot of people just disappeared? But they went because they thought they could do it without ending up in a dungeon somewhere. So for me, talking about this is, I think it's interesting to understand, if you want to understand where I am today, why I'm focusing on the things that I am doing. And a lot of people know the story, especially from James Foley's letter that I took out for him when I was released and passed it over to his family, his mother and father. And he was the first one beheaded by Islamic State and he became kind of this visual proof of how barbaric this new terror organization actually was. And yeah, so suddenly my name was everywhere in the media. And I think that the story about us Westerners trying to survive in the hand of Islamic State is an interesting story. It is. But a lot of the time, I think we kind of forget who this actually is about. And I think it's about the victims of war, the Syrians in this case, the common person who are just trying to survive and Bashir, who helped me, I think he got shot when Islamic State needed to retreat from the children's hospital because he was not worth a lot of money and they had to escape because the front line was getting too close. It was too risky to have a prison right there. So they took all of us Western hostages, who was worth a lot of money. They took us to a secure place and, yeah, killed like 300 local Syrian prisoners. So I feel a little bit that I'm, with my story, standing on top of a lot of suffering. And if you look at the fact that people's lives should be equally worth, it's not. I was worth a lot of money, but Bashir wasn't. Now I'm alive because I was born in Denmark. So I think that that makes me very humble and whenever I talk about this, I feel that I'm a little bit locked in a way because I cannot just stand up in a commercial somewhere and be like, oh, buy this new bag. It's uh, really strong like I was when I survived Syria. Um, I cannot do that. That'll be for me forgetting what I actually have been through. So I like to tell my story and I do a lot of lectures about what I've been through, to constantly remind myself of how lucky I was. And somehow that should also be a big part of the decisions that I'm making now. Because as I told you before, I think we adapt very fast. I realized that when I was in Somalia, but I also realized that in Syria, when I suddenly was just happy to get water and a blanket, and I didn't have to wear handcuffs and a blindfold all the time. And I could go to the toilet whenever I wanted. And I felt like, oh, wow, this is amazing. But it wasn't. It was still the worst situation that I could imagine at this point. But I adapted to being a prisoner. As well as when I came back to Denmark, 
I adapted fast to being a free man, being irritated about people in the shopping mall who kind of tried to jump the line. And I was like, fucking hell, man, get back. I am standing here for some time and now you try to get in front. And I think that was two weeks after I was released. I was standing there and being irritated at something so stupid. But that's the time it took me to adapt back to being a normal person in Denmark. So yeah, I'm really struggling trying to not forget the story that I'm standing on top of today. Because that is why I am alive and why I have a story. Hmm. When you moved into the same cell with the other foreigners, many of whom were English-speaking, I got this sense when reading your book that there was a strong sense of camaraderie and that this was a shot in the arm for you at this point. The very idea of you celebrating birthdays and Christmas together in those conditions feels almost absurd. But how important was that in terms of helping you maintain this sense of hope? I think when you have a common enemy, you tend to get closer and to jump into the same boat and help each other. And when that common enemy is not there, suddenly internal conflicts start to appear. So in this period where there was less violence and we were just sitting there, we tend to focus on each other and creating conflicts among each other. And whenever the guards came in and beat us up, suddenly we were best friends again. And I think that's, <laughs> that's interesting because that's not only in a war zone in Syria, in a dungeon in Syria, that's also in the real life. When we feel too well and when we have less worries, we need to find a common enemy and that can kind of dictate where our focus are. And I think that can be problematic in a way. It's like we as humans, it's such a deep part of us to be a part of something and to feel that we are among equals. And therefore, it's the idea of us and them. And if we don't care about us, them will come and um, create problems. Hmm. Sounds very much like you found this deep sense of purpose to your life, strangely in the midst of this horrific situation. Is that a fair reflection? Yeah, I've never felt that my job have been so important as it was right there, because they managed to silence a lot of journalists and NGO workers for a time. And journalists stopped to enter Syria because it was fucking dangerous. You could end up in that orange jumpsuit getting beheaded. And so they created a space where not a lot of information could slip out unless they wanted it to. So they created an amazing communication propaganda office structure that made Islamic State one of the best well-known brands in the whole world within a few months just by killing people. And I thought that was problematic, that they silenced us. So therefore, I really felt more than ever the urge of continuing my job to go out there and try to understand and make it understandable for people who don't travel to those places and want to understand the world that we're living in and a lot of the reason why things are turning out the way they are and 
especially looking towards the fact that when I was released, the refugee crisis was kind of coming up and sitting there back home in Denmark, recovering, like I should recover and I should get my life back together, blah, blah, blah. And then you just see the story that I tried to make in Syria just happen in Denmark when refugees was walking on our highways. And I was sitting there being like, how can you be surprised that there are refugees walking on our highways? This conflict has been going on for about four years now. And a lot of people are trying to raise awareness of this crisis. And the rhetoric in Denmark, especially our political system, just started to turn in a way that I felt was very inhumane. And it takes me a little bit back to my point of we need a common enemy. And um, we need to stay together to fight that enemy. And I thought that was very depressing. Very, very depressing. Especially not being able to actually do stories about it myself. And if this whole Syria kidnapping thing didn't happen, maybe I could have been hanging out with a family who was going through these phases before they ended up arriving on our highways to kind of understand why are you fleeing your own country and your own house and to understand the people that we look at as them and not us. Hmm. So I felt very irritated in that period in many ways the need of understanding refugees and not being able to contribute to that discussion. And I think that's when I really started to do a lot of lectures because I kind of got my story of why people decide to flee because I met Bashir. And when you hear my story and how I was treated and you hear about Bashir, I don't think it's difficult to understand why you decide to leave your own home when you possibly can end up in a black dungeon not knowing if you're going to be killed, released, or tortured to death. Hmm. I found it really interesting that after your family managed to raise the ransom of in excess of 2 million euros to secure your release, which in and of itself is another remarkable story, but when you returned, you could have been forgiven for wanting to surround yourself with the pleasant distractions of Danish life, but instead you chose to immerse yourself in documentaries, articles, television reports about the conflict in Syria. Was that a way of you trying to come to terms with what you'd experienced, or was it to follow the plight of your friends who were still in captivity, including James? What motivated that decision? A lot of it was trying to understand why this happened and to try to be updated and maybe also not leaving everything behind. So, of course, you can come back home after an experience that I had and feel empty inside because everything was about life or death. If you got food, oh, we are going to live. If they forgot us, oh, now we are going to die because they are not giving us food. So everything is always going to the extreme. And then you go back home and everything is not extreme. Everything is just calm and easily and nice. So, of course, I, I tried to keep track and follow the conflict. But when my friends was killed, um, beheaded, I, um, I suddenly lost that. I, I didn't need to dig into Syria anymore. I needed to find my own purpose in a way because I would not 
go back to Syria. And I should have another focus in my life. And I should do my own stories. And what is my story? What is my story to tell? And what are the stories that need to be told? Of course, it's important to do stories about conflicts. I really think, but there's also other things that are threatening us. And then I started to dig into the whole climate change thing. But that started like by an accident because I started to read a lot into statistics. I started to Google what is the biggest threat to our small welfare system. What is actually going to be our problem of the future? And that started to give me this impression that wars are not going to change our world, our welfare system in Denmark. But pandemics are potentially one of the biggest threats. And this was research that I did in 2015. And then I also stumbled upon climate refugees and the big impact of climate change and how that will change the world's structure and the systems and the way we behave. So I was like, I didn't want to photograph the potential of pandemics. I don't understand shit about that. But I thought that climate change was interesting. And especially when I came across an article talking about how climate change have impacted Syria. Because there was, I think it was 2009 to 2011, a drought that forced a number between half and one million people from the countryside of Syria into the cities, creating the need of food and jobs. And that had a big impact on why the civil war actually came to Syria. Because unemployed people and inflation, and when things are not going well, we tend to look towards the people who are in control and in the power. And I started to understand how that had an impact on the war in Syria. Um, and I started to think about, okay, what if there wasn't a drought? Would I have been through this whole thing then? And it became kind of personal for me, saying that, okay, whatever I have been through, maybe my work should be trying to counter this. So yeah, climate change suddenly changed my way of prioritizing my work. And that, that was fucking depressive. Um, like really depressing to dig into all the information about climate change so far made by numbers of academics and people who have been focusing on this stuff for decades. That was really, really, really depressing because I looked into the idea that there'll be around a billion climate refugees in 2050. Wow. And wherever I looked and when I spoke to people who knew a lot about this subject, the number was always increasing. It just got worse and worse. So that was when I decided that my work should be on trying to understand this big invisible monster that we do not understand. Because we understand a good villain in a movie like Jihadi John in Ceremon, Daniel. The main torturer featured in the film about your story. Yeah, he's a villain taking out of a James Bond movie, almost. We understand that he's killing people and that's a threat towards us. But what we do not understand is how the change of nature will impact us. That's not something that our brain can process and understand. So maybe if I could do some pictures that can kind of visualize that, 
the impact of climate change. That will make me feel that I kind of contribute and give a little bit back of the life that I still got. And that was the beginning of my first photographic book about climate change. And that book you mentioned, Men's Vivenda, yeah. or While We Wait, I wanted to talk in more detail about that because for me it's a great example of taking an issue that feels almost unfathomable and making it tangible. Can you share a little about where the genesis of this idea for the project came from? My focus basically started in Somalia about getting close to a few people and try to understand why they're going right or left, which I also tried in Syria. It made sense to do the same here because if I could boil down this whole completely abstract problem into a small family, that will maybe make it a bit easier for me. Um, basically, I'm very lazy. <laughs> and when I say that, it's much easier just to hang around one family and listen to them. So I tried to take all that data and kind of cook it down to a place and a city. And I traveled to the small city in the southern part of Malawi that have been very affected by climate change. And climate change is a lot of things. But for this family, it was the struggle between drought and floodings. So basically, unstable weather. So I traveled to this small town and I was welcomed by Mr. Condisa, who spoke fluent English and was a part of the Red Cross community in this small city in the middle of nowhere in Malawi. It was basically a place where people lived under the poverty line. And he told me that you can stay at my house as long as you want and I will help you with, with your story. And I was like, boom, this is my main character. And what was interesting with this guy was that he was not the weakest in the city. He was actually one of the stronger guys and families in the city. He had things to work with. He had his cows that he told me was a little bit like his bank account. So when he bought a cow, maybe it had calves, uh, cow babies, as he called them. Yeah. And then his wealth will increase. But the problem was when drought comes, they will not have cow babies. And then his wealth will decrease. And I thought that was a very, very interesting way of looking at it to kind of find parallels between the way we look at our financial system here in Denmark and the way he looks at his finances in Malawi. And he was not talking about money, but animals. And when I met him, he already started to lose cows. His wealth peaked in 2014 when he had 19 cows. And last time I visited him in 2019, he had seven cows left. So I think that was a pretty good picture of when things are not evolving, but going the wrong way. So he's struggling trying to go over the poverty line. He's dreaming of sending his kids to real schools and into the bigger cities and getting real education. That was his big dream, but um, it was not possible. So he tries to manage selling two cows, being able to buy a new land where the land is closer to the moisture in the ground. It's also more um, affected by floods because it's low area. So all these things for me to try to understand how he's trying to adapt into this new situation. I thought that was really interesting. And I started to look into his kids. What are they doing? What are they dreaming of? 
because Mr. Condi says he will never flee his own home. But it's a completely different story when you look into his kids. They are already fleeing. So my aim has never been to sell a shitload of books, but to have a testimonial that we can look into when we actually start to discuss this big problem. Because it is on top five of the biggest threats towards our welfare system here in Denmark. And if you are left-wing, white-wing, conservative, liberal, you will need to, to have an opinion on this matter. Hmm. One of the other projects that you've embarked upon in recent times was hosting the TV series Ulla Mergel, Out of the Darkness, whereby you would meet with individuals who have also experienced major trauma in their lives, be it having survived the massacre in Utoya or dealing with the grief of the suicide of a family member. I'm curious what you learnt about yourself through this process of journeying through grief with others. Yeah, so the whole idea came up because I was contacted by an editor and he had an idea that maybe we could do something together. And then I told him then whenever I have done a lecture, people often come to me afterwards and start telling about their own traumas as they feel like there is some kind of connection between us. And there is. I just told one of the most intimate parts of my life and we started to talk about why not trying to give these people a voice and understand how they are dealing with their traumas in different ways. And because in this TV show, I'm not a normal journalist interviewing people with a lot of written down questions. It's more like a conversation. And um, I think once again, it's a way of saying that we all have different ways of struggling if it is in a war zone where you're trying to find food and just to be safe from bombs and fighting, or if it is to be in a small welfare system where you suddenly are ending up on a detour, it's still a way of working with yourself and accepting yourself and understanding yourself and rebuild yourself after a trauma like that. And somehow I have this idea that we are not very good at talking about what we really are struggling with um, we like to talk about how you're doing and the weather and often it's because people are polite they didn't want to bother other people with their traumas another time is they want to make sure that their partners in life or the kids do not have to struggle with their traumas so we kind of stop ourselves from being honest to each other to try to protect our loved ones and not drag them into this darkness. And I don't think it's very healthy to go around with a lot of shit inside yourself. My own story from Syria, I've spoken about that 500 times or so. So it's a big part of my working life to talk about my trauma. But I think other people should be better at talking about their trauma. I think they will feel better about it and then we can start to help each other yeah so that's a little bit what i hope this program can do but for me it's also a way of trying to get a purpose in my working life because doing these lectures about what happened in syria i like it and i think it's important to tell the story but at some point it will end and doing these documentaries will be able to create something that in the future will give me a voice 
not talking about myself, but to help people. Have you always had that strong ability to show empathy? Yeah, I th yeah. My dad died when I was three years old um, from a head trauma, um, like a cancer in his brain, the size of an egg. And my mom just was by herself with a yeah. I was three years old, and my sister was ten when he died. She was a hairdresser at this time and was struggling to keep things together. Um, so when she found a new man and who I'm calling dad today because I've, I've never known any other dad than him. I know that I have a biological dad, but he's my dad today and he adopted me and my sister. We moved to his house, but my mom still had this experience in her life. And because he was a hairdresser, she spoke to people all the time and she heard stories and she always been very focused on trying to help other people. So whenever there was somebody around who suddenly experienced trauma, or sicknesses or traffic accident or whatever, she would go there and just give them some flowers and ask, how are you doing? So I think I was raised with a mom who experienced being very afraid that this would affect her children and so on. So I think she's been very aware of other people. And I, I didn't think about it when I was a kid because that was the most normal that I've ever experienced. But now when I start to talk about feelings and talking about life with people that I just meet wherever I go, or I start to realize things and be like, oh, maybe this kind of connects with this. So it's a little bit like going to a psychiatrist and just by saying it out loud, you kind of understand yourself a bit better. And I did that just through my work somehow. Hmm. You mentioned that trauma can often be treated as a social taboo. I'm curious how you dealt with the fact that your personal trauma was so public. More or less everyone in this country knew who you were and what you'd been through. Was that difficult to come back to a place where you couldn't just be anonymous and deal with these things at your own pace? Yeah, in the beginning, I was very irritated that I just couldn't be myself as I were before, that I couldn't be divided from my experience in Syria. But then I realized that I was fighting myself and my own story. So instead of trying to run away from something that everybody was interested in, I thought maybe the more I talk about it, then at some point people are not interested in hearing that story anymore. And then they know me, they know what I'm standing for, and maybe that could give me a platform to actually do my job as I want to do it, trying to, yeah, make the world a bit more understandable. So I think it's a strong way of creating a narrative by allowing people into the darkness of your own life, because that's when identification becomes very, very strong. And today we really like to see famous people in documentaries or TV shows. And I just read on the bus on the way to here that there was a prison escape TV show with famous people trying to escape a prison. And a lot of television is focused on famous people because we can identify with them. We know them. We feel in good company with them. 
And maybe that's the shortcut for a person like me to tell the stories that I think are important. And in this case, it's traumas of other people. And then again, I think what's very difficult for me now is not to forget where I'm coming from and what my aims are, because I don't want to end up in a TV show where they want famous people to try to escape a prison. That's not what I think I should use my voice for, but I want to use my voice to bring things into light that we kind of tend to forget. And when I'm talking about it, it feels a little bit like I'm sent from heaven, from God to save this world, but because I don't want to be that. I just want to be myself and I just want to be interested in other people, even if it's some Danish family who lost their kid to suicide or if it's a family in Malawi who are struggling with getting things to grow that they can harvest and eat. So I, I try to always remember where I'm from. And that's why these photographic books for me are so important. Because I think if I only did television, I could lose myself into that format. And I think I can be a bit dangerous because I'm always a little bit afraid of changing too much. Having too much success will change my way of telling stories and understanding people and all these kind of things. So, Would you consider yourself a more spiritual person or a less spiritual person as a result of your experience in Syria? Um, I, I think it's a difficult question for me. I'm not used to getting that question. I think... I try to understand why this happened to me. I try to seek an explanation. And when I did that, I got an explanation. Because there has been a war for a long time and this war against terror. And we have been a part in a war in Afghanistan and Iraq. So that means that I'm not innocent because I represent a country with my passport. and to think that I'm not a part of that history, I think would be kind of ignorant because people who have been living in Afghanistan and Iraq and who have been victims of war, they will try to find places to fight this war machine where we come with drones and highly developed and intelligent and we can literally fight a war from our own sofas almost. So to being a war so uneven, it's not like a gun versus a gun. It's a gun versus a hellfire missile that comes from the sky and just fucking kills everything around you, maybe included your family. So trying to fight that war also forces people into do whatever they can do. And I think that's a big way of understanding Islamic State. Not that I identify, uh, not that I'm on their side, but I just try to understand what would I do if I just lost my whole family that went to a funeral and a hellfire missile just killed them because whatever I'm fighting wanted to kill a few high-standing generals who was at that funeral, I would be fucking pissed and I would think the world is completely unfair and I will try to fight it somehow. So the idea of Thinking about war and the war on terror as something that will not affect me, I think it was not that difficult to understand. So 
I try to explain things. I, at least I try to understand things from other people's perspective. And that's not the same as agreeing what they're doing, uh, saying that AI is totally okay to blow up a subway station or fly a plane into some buildings. I'm not, I'm, that's not what I'm saying, but I'm just saying that there is always two sides of a story. So I don't think that God is more or less here. Um, of course, when I was at the worst point in my time in Syria, I stopped killing mosquitoes because I thought, oh, if I kill them, what is my life worth then? Um, so, of course, I had short periods where I was completely stressed and afraid and hoped just to be alive a few more days. But then again, when I came back home, I, of course, I kill a mosquito now if it starts to bite me. And so I, I'm not thinking a lot about that today, but I try to understand why people are doing as they are because I don't think that you are born evil. I don't think that you just want to kill just to see blood. I think there is a reason behind what we are doing because the most easy thing is to look at the world in black and white and saying that they are evil, I'm good. But I think that's somehow ignorant. I think everything can be explained somehow. Hmm. I think it's remarkable you can have a nuanced view after what you've been through personally. Wouldn't you agree? I think it, not really. Of course, you will think that if you went through what I have experienced, you would completely lose faith in humanity and think people are idiots and um, just be full of hate. But I think it's so easy to go down that road, go around and be angry and hate things. I don't want to do that. I'm alive and I feel well and I have a wonderful family. So I have nothing to be angry about. I've accepted what happened to me and just trying to get the best out of it. Because my story is much more positive than Bashir's. Um, he's probably somewhere in a ditch and his family don't know they couldn't bury him. He's just gone leaving his family behind and I'm capable of doing stuff and continue to do what I went to Syria to do, to try to tell stories and make us all understand the world a bit better. Because when we understand things, suddenly it's not that terrifying anymore. It's a little bit like watching a horror movie and then turn on the lights and turn down the volume and suddenly it's not that scary anymore. And I think that's a much more sustainable way of looking at the things that you don't like or you're afraid of. The easiest way is just to close your door and roll down your curtains and put up surveillance cameras and a big wall around your house or at the border or whatever you will do to lock the whole world out. But I think it's much more sustainable to actually try to understand the world because hopefully that's the easiest way to make sure that things will not continue as they are because we can actually change things by understanding it and then work our way towards something that's a bit better somehow. Hmm. You have a remarkable story, Daniel, and a great ability to tell the important stories of others. So I just really want to thank you for taking the time to share your thoughts so deeply with me today. I'm the one saying thank you. It was... Uh, 
And thank for coffee and water and stuff. <laughs> You're so welcome. Thank you. Nordic Portraits is a series by me, Ben Catford. The music was composed by Nina Liu and the visual identity by Copenhagen-based studio Frame. To learn more about today's guest and all the others from this season, visit nordicportraits.net. You can also follow us on Instagram and remember to rate and subscribe on iTunes so we can get the word out. Thanks for listening. <laughs>